Good morning, Sleepy Town. I'm Beau Bartlett, and you're listening to the Art House. Art House Radio. Coming to you from way down, way down here in beautiful downtown Columbus, Georgia. Across the tracks from WCUG. 88.5 Columbus State University We're also heard on Alm Radio 96.3 over in Charleston Charleston, South Carolina Good morning, Charleston Glad you're with us this morning on the radio It's good to be here It's a beautiful morning We have a special guest with us this morning We have Noah Buchanan Artist, curator, all-around good guy from California. Good morning, Noah. Morning, Bo. How you doing today? I'm awesome. It's amazing to be here with you. I'm, I'm glad that you're here, and I look forward to this conversation we're going to have. But let's get down to business first. We've got a couple of things. We've got a couple of things to take care of. We have a word of the day today. Word of the day today is draw. Draw. D-R-A-W. Drawing. The art of making marks on paper. Draw really has a lot of different uses and interpretations. You can uh, a horse can draw a cart behind it. Well, it means uh, also to pull. Also means to guide. Um, she drew him aside. Mm, you can also draw the blinds. That's like pulling. Uh, you can draw a gun from your holster. If you dare. Hopefully not. Let's not. Let's not do it. You can draw water from a well. You can draw a bath. You can draw a breath. All of these acts relate to the art of drawing, Mm -hmm. which you do, Mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons that you're in town. That's right. You you were teaching a drawing class. You've been teaching a drawing class at the Bobartlett Center. Yeah. We have a quote of the day. Quote of the day actually comes from uh, the Bible. We don't have many Bible quotes. We have one from the King James Version from James, James 4, 8. Draw close to God and God will draw close to you. All right. So glad you're with us this morning on the radio. Uh, Noah, I think you're going to DJ for us a little bit here today. Do you have a song for us to get us started this morning? I do. I just want to say first off that this is so exciting to be here. And it's very surreal for me because... I live in Santa Cruz, California, and a painter in my studio. Uh, art house is often on my stereo and listening um, to episodes. And um, it's going to be very, it's very strange for me to be inside the episode, but also experiencing it from the other end too. And I'm not sure how to explain it. It's very surreal. Thanks, um, thanks for listening. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a favorite um, part of my studio practice is, is having the show as a companion. Um, Okay. Right, so, so if you were in control of the show, what song would you play first this morning? We're going to start, and a lot of the uh, the songs I've I've DJed today have to do with uh, uh, they come from Art House Radio inspiration. So, um, the first one is "Summer in Siam" by the Pogues, mm-hmm. and I heard this on my favorite Art House Radio episode, going way back um, to the Painter episode, and that's always been my favorite episode. And he played. 
he played that song and um, talked about how uh, it was from the Basquiat movie. And uh, it's, it's, it's used really wonderfully in the movie. I remember you saying at the time that, uh, you know, watching Basquiat always makes you want to get into the studio. And, um, and I feel the same. And so when I hear that song now, it triggers all those feelings. It's something I'll put on in the studio to kind of get warmed up and inspired for the day. So let's from, hear that. From the film Basquiat by Schnabel, Julian Schnabel, The Pogues, Summer in Siam.
Good morning. I'm Bo Bartlett, and you're listening to The Art House. That was The Pogues with Summer in Siam. DJed by our guest today, Noah Buchanan. Good morning, Noah. Good morning, Bo. Ah, so glad you're here in Sleepy Town with us. It's great to be here. This is a town that is literally blossoming in front of the eyes, and I, I feel like I'm witnessing a renaissance of the South uh, everywhere that I go here, and people that I meet, and the art that I see, and uh, the revitalization of this of this city, of this town. It's a sweet spot, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. We, we love it here. It's just just ergonomic. It's just right. Not not too big. We don't have a lot of the troubles of other places. We have little troubles. And uh, we, we all know each other and see each other, and we handle them together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's nice about a smaller place like this. Yeah. So uh, you're in town because we, uh, we had a, a drawing uh, master class at the Bo Bartlett Center the last few days. That's right. So um, so glad you're here and so glad you're here to sort of uh, share your wisdom with, with the local artists and artists that came in from out of town. Tell us a little bit, if you could, about how you got here, where, where you're from originally, and uh, how you got into art and drawing in the first place, if you can. Yeah, I'm, I'm beginning in... Uh in Santa Monica, Venice, California. My mom and I moved there when I was about one, just the two of us. I started drawing right away. You know, from the, I, I don't have memories where there isn't drawing happening. And, uh, and you know, some, some of it's kind of obvious things like drawing, uh, you know, Spider-Man, out of the, copying it from the comic books, tracing it, and, and dra- making drawings of um, things that entertain me. Uh, d- drawings were like a form of entertainment, you know. Um, they were, uh, you know, like like drawing Star Wars imagery or dinosaurs or, um, you know, uh, Indiana Jones, things like that, that, that were really exciting to me as a child. So I continued doing that starting at as early as five and kept going and um, got a lot of, uh, you know, approbation for that from, from my mom, from my grandparents, from my peers, uh, you know, even in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, people would point out, hey, you draw really well. And that feels really good, you know, when you're young. Yeah. Um, we moved up to Santa Barbara when I was, uh, you know, in, in elementary school, about, about eight, nine years old. Uh, and later we moved up to, um, to Washington State, to the Puget Sound when I was in high school. But um, my, my practice of drawing just uh, increased along the way and got more and more intense and more uh, my identity to it, to not really not just drawing, but the practice of making art being thought of as an artist um, started to define my identity. And I remember some, some very pivotal moments for me um, about nine or 10 years old, going to little league practice, uh, getting hit in the face with the ball because I couldn't, I couldn't catch. I couldn't throw, (laughs) Um, wanted to, you know, all my, all my, buddies and peers at that age they're all good at throwing balls and 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 sports and you know just constantly missing the ball and the football would slip right through my fingers and hit me in the face over and over again one day at little league the ball hit me in the head really hard and i ended up crying in front of everybody the whole team the coach i know it well yes i'm sure <laughs> i bet you do because we have you know it's, it's a similar story um everybody laughed you yeah. know i got on my bike and I rode home kind of through these furious tears, you know. I got home and just, um, I remember it was impulsive. I pulled out 
a sheet of drawing paper. It wasn't really drawing paper. It was like eight and a half by 11 printer paper that mm-hmm. my mom kept stacks of it around. On the other side, there was always typewritten memos from the office. She'd just bring home reams of the stuff because I would, I would take it out in a few, in a few weeks, the whole pile would be gone. I just grabbed the paper, the pencil, and I started drawing while you know, I was crying and processing these feelings. But I felt immediately this cathartic, you know, security blanket kind of a feeling that I was safe, that I was doing what I was best at. And there was this um, almost this feeling of vindication that I knew that the drawing I was making in that moment meant so much more than at least in my mind, it meant so much more than what the guys were experiencing out on the, on the baseball diamond. Mm -hmm. Maybe that wasn't true for them. Actually, maybe that was a very valuable experience, but for me, I felt, I saw so much more value. I mean, you know, there's no comparison. And uh, I knew that I knew that this was, this was going to be my life going forward. Yeah. That, that, that memory is really big in my mind and it, it ties into drawing. Yeah, there's a powerful thing about being able to get your feelings down and uh, have them uh, have a place, a safe place. And at the end of making those marks, whatever they are, you feel better and you know that it's a process of sublimation where you're getting it down and um, experiencing life fully and allowing yourself to have the emotions, but um, recording it somehow in a way that uh, there's a product at the end of it, strangely enough. That's right. Yeah. And then that has a big impact. You know, you start getting people's reactions to that, yeah. that product. Yeah. And that feels really good, especially at a young age. If you start making your grandparents cry. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I sucked at baseball. I, I played little league. I played for three years. There was one year, I think it was my last year. I, I had a zero batting average. Mm-hmm. I was the only person in the whole league. And I mean, there were like nine teams in the peach little league mm-hmm. played down there in Wiracoba park. And, um, I was the only person with a zero batting average and I played every game. I mean, that means I either struck out or walked every time. I never got a hit, not wow. once. Um, and I played right field, uh, which is the, you know, if, if you know baseball, you know, mm-hmm. you know like that's the worst position. Literally, that's the worst position. The yep. ball's not going to get hit yep. to right field because most people are right handed batters. They're going to hit it left or center or, you know, in the infield. So, um, yeah, I spent a lot of time in the outfield just like looking around. Yeah, me know? too. Me too. Um, but I was fortunate enough, actually, when I when I got a little bit older to, to be a, a bat boy for the local farm farm club, that was the. Uh, the um, White Sox, Columbus White Sox, and then it was Columbus Astros. So these guys, these like 18, 19 year old local farm club baseball players taught me a lot about baseball. So I finally got better. Mm. By, I was trained by them. So that was a, a nice thing to learn about baseball from these young guys. And they were so sweet and so nice to me. Um, so after that, so after your baseball experience, yeah. after your uh, experience with uh, learning that you could draw and get the feelings down. Um, junior high school, high school, was there a moment where like awards came or like uh, you were appreciated by the... Yeah, I think I think the next biggest thing we're talking about that happened, we moved to Florida. We left oh. Washington. So I do have a little bit of the South in me in my, in my oh. development. You know, we lived in, but we lived in Southwest Florida, which is a co- very complex area. It's kind of the, it's part South. Uh, a lot of folks there are Southern in culture. Mm-hmm. And, but it's also full of transplants from Jersey and New York. Right. And, uh, and so you hear all, you hear all the accents there. And this was in, uh, Lee County, Florida, where, uh, Fort Myers is, where Pine Island is that we lived out on Pine Island. And how old were you when you moved there? I was, uh, 16. 
And okay. so I did my last years of high school there. And, you know, something that I've noticed just experienced with you in the past few days is that the South is incredibly supportive of the arts, What you know, mm. way more than I experienced in California, which you'd think would be, you know, a very artsy place. It's not, it's not that way, not what I see in the South, not what I experienced. Um, it was full of competitions for young people in the arts with awards, uh, with ways to experience being uh, su- uh, feeling successful in the arts. And I had this wonderful uh, high school art teacher named Stephen Frank and uh, Mr. Frank at the time. And as so I was a junior in high school and um, he was the kind of artist who, you know, he didn't really teach us techniques, but he would sit down with us and help us brainstorm concepts for images, you know, and he, and he loved realism. So he wanted me to draw in a realist tradition and I wanted to draw uh, he had a big poster of uh, Durer uh, engraving on the wall. It was a St. Saint, Saint Jerome. And uh, I did something that was emulative of that St. Jerome in the wilderness. I did my own version of it. And he said, we're going to put this in the next competition. And I thought, I didn't know there was a competition. So it turned out Lee County had this uh, this big, giant uh, competition with all the high schools. And I ended up winning uh, first place in the, in the competition. And that was the first time I'd experienced that, like an official uh, you know, uh, an official award being given and, um, something that was really tangibly felt as yeah. a, a feeling of success. And that really amplified and cemented my feelings of identity and in, in drawing and being mm-hmm. an artist. And later that year, he entered me in a, in a bigger contest called the congressional art award and same teacher, same school, same year. And I did a, a bigger piece, a bigger drawing, and it won. It won first place, best of show, and it won the Congressional Art Award. So I was about seventeen when this happened, and it went to uh, it went to Congress, and it hung in Congress for a year. And um, you know that made me realize I can really do this if I if yeah. I really put my mind to it. And by that point, I had you know I had really gone deep into the identity that I'm an artist. I had long hair. I would. I would wear uh, tie-dyed shirts that I had painted myself. Like I tie-dyed them, but then I would like paint things on them with acrylic paint. And I wear pants that had, you know, paint splatter all over them. And, <laughs> and I just went way deep into the into the identity of yeah. it. And uh, it was really exciting at that time because you know, in high school, we all experienced this. Like the the kids that get the most um, reward and 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 recognition. Oftentimes, they're the, the, the athletes, you know, the football team. They're always going to make a big announcement if, they, if the football team did well that on the previous Friday night or if there's a swimmer on the swim team who got a medal. They announced that right off the bat. That morning after I won the Congressional Art Award, I remember them making a, an announcement across the whole school. And it was a huge high school. It was 2,000 kids. Yeah. And they announced it. And I was like a celebrity from there on out in the school. And right. it was, you know, it was life-altering yeah for sure it, it, you know i think sometimes people don't realize how important that kind of recognition is at an early age for for whatever it is that you're doing yeah um yeah it's same for me i was like you know you go in an award and it's like oh i can be recognized for this you yeah know? And it really does alter your own self-perception and and others perceptions of you yeah how important that is yeah well, I think it'd be a nice moment for a little music break. Uh, what, what, what else do you have lined up for us here today, Noah oh, Buchanan? Let me think here about DJ. What, what's next on the on our list that would would be good right now. Um, let's hear "Blue and Green" by Miles Davis. Mm. This is a song that makes me think of of both Art House Radio. I've heard it. I've heard you play it before. I've heard it behind some of your stories. This is the perfect song for this kind of weather in autumn. Um, it's something that I would listen to on my headphones walking around New York when I lived in New York City. 
and it just fits the bill perfectly. It just puts you in exactly the right mood, the right mindset. Um, it's almost like it was made for walking around on a day like this, particularly in New York City, but it works really anywhere. It's great music to paint to. It's great to paint to. Blue and green, Miles Davis.
Blue and Green, Miles Davis. What a lovely song. What a lovely song to paint to, to have in your studio. If there was one album that I could have that I would listen to all the time, I think that would be it. I would just have it on a deserted island. So we're here with Noah Buchanan uh, on Art House. And uh, Noah, tell us, so you know that was your high school experience down in Florida. What happened next? Did you go to, uh, I know you wound up at the Pennsylvania Academy, but how did you get there? What was your route to, to getting to Philly? You know, starting in sixth grade, I had decided that RISD was where I was going to go. I had a very close family friend, uh, Mark McNair. He's a well-known decoy carver in Virginia. He carves decoys and shorebirds and even fish, but he does it in a very artful, sculptural way. He had known my mom as a child and gone to RISD and become an artist, a working professional artist. So I thought, here's somebody who is an artist, making a living, supporting their family, successful. So that means I'll go to RISD. So I was, I started telling people from the time I was in sixth grade that I was going to be at RISD and uh, fantasized about it and applied there. Uh, my mom said, you know, we should really look for a backup school in case something goes wrong with RISD. Um, she, she found through research, she just, she found the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts and we got catalogs and brochures. And the more I started to look at the two schools, I thought, you know, wait a minute, I think this is the place for me. Um, what I saw in the catalogs from the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts was, um, I guess, simply put, classical realism. Mm-hmm. And and then all of a sudden, all the names being mentioned were these major, majorly historically important artists like Thomas Aikens, Mary Cassatt, Maxfield Parrish. The Wyeths were associated with the school just from proximity of being in Chad's Ford to Philadelphia. Uh, it went on and on. And, I, and the more I read about the school and, and saw photographs of its historic Frank Furness building in Philadelphia, uh, you know, images of artwork that the instructors were making at the school. Right. I, I realized this is the place for me. I went ahead and applied to both schools. I got a um, nice acceptance letter from RISD and then followed by a very disappointing financial aid letter from RISD <laughs> saying that not only can we not give you any financial aid, but um, the tuition is going to be going up for $1,000 for the next 15 years every year. And they did that. I, I knew about RISD and I applied to RISD, did not get oh, in. Oh, I didn't did, know that. Did not get in. You didn't get in. <laughs> nope. And, uh, but uh, I didn't even know about the academy. You know, I knew about Philadelphia, mm-hmm. Philadelphia College of Art, which is where I wound up going for a year. Right. Uh, which is University of the Arts. But, you know, I think PAFA just didn't have uh, the kind of PR in a lot of ways to, you know, spread the word. They were just taking care of business and, you know, teaching right. people how to, how to draw and paint. Yeah. But they uh, weren't doing the PR at that time so much. So um, good on good on your mom for helping you. She's kind of been the, the major driving force ever since the beginning. I That's mean, every awesome. every drawing I made, she had a big reaction, big support of and and really wanted me to be an artist. As she said, she used to put Monet books in my crib when I was you know, two and three <laughs> and what, you know, and she would find me looking at them. But, That's a great story. Um, yeah. You know, and how important the support of the parents really is. Yeah. It's so important. Yeah. So the, you, you went to the Pennsylvania Academy. I found myself in Philadelphia at the Pennsylvania Academy. It was uh, 1994. I just gotten out of high school. I went straight there. Um, they gave me a very nice financial aid package, which PAFA is known for doing. I moved to a little apartment in West Philadelphia. That part was interesting, not having a dorm room, but just 18 years old, right out of home, suddenly living in your own little apartment and uh, taking the bus across Philly to, to school every day, downtown Philadelphia. This, the Philadelphia at the time was, it was interesting. It was, uh, you know, it was a mixed bag. There was a lot of crime. 
um, Philadelphia, I think it's still this way. It has, you know, really nice, a really nice block followed by, you know, really rough block. And it's like a checkerboard. It never, you can't really stay in one part of Philly and just be in the nice part. You know, you're going to experience the whole thing Mm -hmm. on a daily basis and you'll have a big range of experiences. And I found Philadelphia was just loaded full of public sculpture, uh, sculptures that I loved everything from like civil war, uh, heroes, mounted on horseback around the city hall to um, the Swan Fountain, these giant allegorical figures uh, in the park near uh, heading up to the museum. And of course, fun things like Rocky on the top of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Yeah, yeah, those those things didn't happen by accident. That's, uh, you know, they have a 1% for art program in Philadelphia. So the city budget actually, um, you know, they have to give 1% to to the art. So they're constantly having sculptures. Uh, or murals. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's, it is. This place is loaded with art, and uh, it was wonderful to be an art student. And then PAFA itself has an incredible cast hall. It was filled with Greek and Roman uh, plaster casts, or Italian Renaissance. Uh, and most most of them, what we were told, was that these were casts from the original sculptures. Right. right off the originals, not like a cast of a cast of a cast or from some mold that had been taken 20 times after the original, but right off the originals. The Pennsylvania Academy was one of the few art schools that didn't throw their casts out during the 60s when everybody, when everything was abex and they figured there'd be no reason for these casts to ever exist again. Most art schools threw them out the windows or down the stairs and shattered their plaster casts. It was sort of a performance that they all did. Yeah. Uh, but the Pennsylvania Academy held on to a lot or most of those. And very quickly, uh, upstairs on the top of the school is the Museum of American Art. And I was introduced by two paintings by a man by the name of Bo Bartlett. <laughs> and we all were. And um, we were sort of thunderstruck by these paintings, particularly the one in the museum. But then we quickly led to us looking up more of Bo's work. We had catalogs and slides of all of Bo's work. And we were told that you know, this artist went to the Pennsylvania Academy and has done incredibly well um, as an artist and his career is skyrocketing. And so he became a hero for all of us. Um, you know, hero is a word, but influence is another word. And um, your work became really important to all of us. Well, you know, thanks. I appreciate that very much. There's a, a lineage at the Pennsylvania Academy. You know, right. That, that's one of the, the things. It's a time-honored lineage. And teachers... Uh, were had studied there uh, over and over again. And, and one of the reasons was because they didn't grant a degree at the time. They only granted a certificate. So those teachers really couldn't, with a certificate, go off and teach in other places. Mm-hmm. So if they were uh, good instructors or good painters, they would stay around and uh, teach the, the next generation of students. So there was a real lineage going back to Aikens and beyond, all the way back to uh, Peel, you know, yes. um, yeah. which you know, goes back even further. Uh, into into Europe, uh, West, and those guys. But I think that you know it's a, it's an honor to be able to sort of be a part of that lineage. Yes, and it is. Um, because we had the the students uh, as students when I was there, we had the, the faculty and the the painters that had you know come the generation before us that we were being inspired by Ben Kamahira and, right. and those painters that were showing in New York, but were still teachers at the academy. Yeah, so we we have a funny thing because you know we have we've had some of the same teachers, not all, but um, you know you so you were both an influence, but you also had some of the same teachers. Right. I managed to get a little taste of some of them. They were maybe they're on their way out as I came in, um, but I got to meet Ben Camihero, who's a big influence. Sydney Goodman yeah. was a teacher there at the time. So that's I like that we have that shared 
uh, pass. And I, I, one of my favorite memories is sitting in one of the studios in the Academy. And I was a big, looking at a big book of uh, Aiken's work and, and it included Aiken's photographs. And it was one of the photographs he, he took of himself staged in the studio with models. And I, I started to notice the background in the photograph and I thought, wait a minute, it looks like, it looks like here. And I looked up and I realized that the frieze on the wall and the architecture matched exactly the, the room that I was in at the time. And so yeah. that photograph was taken in that room. Absolutely. Yeah. There was always a sense of, uh, of history, you know, the Pennsylvania Academy, you were, you were part of history when you were there. Yeah. And that was one of the things that, you know, in Chestnut Street was, uh, you know, not far away, and that's where Aikens had a studio, and you could go, and there were you know memorial plaques for where the studio was, and so, and in his paintings, such as the Gross Clinic, one of the great American paintings, was uh, around the corner at Thomas Jefferson. Now it's split between the Pennsylvania Academy and the museum, Philadelphia Museum. But these paintings were, you know, that's like the Night Watch, the American version of Night Watch or something. It is you know? the Gross Clinic is. So you you go and you experience it, and you're just you're drinking it in and, and being inspired by the lineage that you're part of. Yeah, and we and we both had you know a, a big dose of anatomy because of being there, right? And that I think that comes from Aikens. They had they had all of his plaster uh, cadaver casts and just a big tradition of medicine in Philly. So we both had to study anatomy quite a lot um, through lectures, through ob- observation of cadavers, um, and just sort of feeling like we uh, were part of that Aikens tradition of being a painter and studying anatomy. The painting itself, the Gross Clinic, is very, it's about a doctor teaching anatomy and surgery. And of course, you know, Jefferson University is right around the corner. Yeah. You know, Aiken studied in Paris, but he felt like that uh, part of his coming back and teaching at the Pennsylvania Academy was an opportunity for students to not have to do the Grand Tour, to not have to go to Europe to, to, to learn art, that they could stay in America and have an American kind of art, mm-hmm. which was really a fascinating shift at the time. Okay, well, I think it's a good a good time to take a little music break. You know, we can take a music break, take a take a sip of coffee. What do you What are you thinking? What do you got lined up for us, Noah Buchanan? I have a um, a song I'd like to play by a f- someone who's become a friend named Jane Antonia Cornish, mm-hmm. and I met her through Art House Radio, really indirectly. I I first heard her work. She's a composer. I heard it here on Art House Radio. It wasn't this piece. But um, I reached out to her to tell her how meaningful her music was for me, and I began listening to it in the studio and painting to it. And she replied, and we we sort of struck up a correspondence. And at the time, I was working on a, a big, important painting of mine called Symphony, and it's it's got 27 figures in it, life-size figures. They're all playing music. There's a composer in the painting who's writing music, and I decided that I wanted there to be really original music and I didn't just want to get a piece of Bach or Mozart or something and transcribe that into the sheet music because you can actually read this sheet music in this painting. So I reached out to Jane. I said, I know this is kind of a big ask, but would you compose something new that's very simple and that I could paint into the sheet music and I actually want it to be legible that someone could read it and play it. And so she composed a piece called Last Light, which we're going to hear. And she kept going with it and she started composing more music in the style of it. And she came up with her next album oh. called Sierra. So inside of the liner notes in the Sierra album, uh, you'll see a little, uh, you know, an acknowledgement to me and my painting, but um, I love this piece. It's, it's very, very um, ambient, maybe even more than ambient. It's very, it's very, there's a lot of silence and it's very meditative. 
And it really, it's almost like that feeling of slipping into a dream. She, she tiled it last light. So it's like that, almost like the fleeting light of the day, but also the fleeting light of, of your consciousness as you slip into a dream. That's how I think about it. Last light.
That was Last Light by Jane Antonia Cornish. I know Jane. What a, what a wonderful person she is. She is. We were lucky enough to have her music in our film, uh, Things Don't Stay Fixed. That's right. So we were, she was really nice enough to let, her, let us use her music for that film. So Philadelphia, gosh, I love Philly. What a great place. What a great place to be. So uh, you went to the Pennsylvania Academy, you graduated, and then you, what happened after that, Noah? What, where did you go from Philly? Did you stay there and paint? No, I didn't. I decided I wanted to get back to my California roots, and okay. I also didn't have a bachelor's degree in hand from studying at Philly, oh. at, at Pennsylvania Academy. We were there concurrently, because I was, I was, you know, my career was going full steam there in the mid-90s. Right. That's when you graduated? Is right. that when you graduated? Yeah. Yeah, I was in Philly at that time, and I guess maybe did I teach a class for you one time? Was I there when you were, you were there? Did I give you a crit? Maybe you gave me a crit. Yep, I was a was student it, there. It was 1996. Was it a good crit? And we it was a great crit. Um, <laughs> you, uh, yeah, you, you said some very supportive things, and uh, you you said to me, um, "Get in touch with me in 20 years, and I want to hear that you're still painting." Which meant more than you know. And, um, and I followed up on that. I remember it, I was 39, which was 20 years later. And I realized I had that memory and I reached out to you. And, you know, we've, we've been in touch ever since. Yes, we have, yeah. Uh, so where did you go? So you, you left Philly. I went to Santa Cruz, California, where I still live, but although I haven't been there the whole time. But I, um, I went to the University of California, Santa Cruz to get a Bachelor of Arts degree. And I ended up, ironically, studying very closely with a man who's become a very close friend of mine, Frank Galushka, oh, yeah. a Philadelphia painter. And craziest coincidence, Frank had moved to Santa Cruz from Philadelphia at the same time to become the chair of the faculty of the art department at UCSC, University mm -hmm. of California, Santa Cruz. And he and I kind of just attached to each other because I think he was feeling like a fish out of water being a Philadelphian in Santa Cruz, California. I was feeling uh, detached from my roots in Philly and, uh, you know, painters not understanding the same things yeah. or valuing the same things. You go anywhere from Philadelphia and you're a fish out of water because in Philly, everybody is just real. Yes. You learn to be real. You're just like, you say what you think, you say what you feel and you get it out there and you're not afraid. And everybody's doing the same thing in Philly. So everybody's really communicating really clearly and well. And sometimes, you know, a little friction, but it's all good friction. It's all good. It saves a lot of time and it's very honest. In Santa Cruz, we make sure we don't offend anybody. And that can take a long time it's a southern to get well. to the point. Yeah, yes. The South is the same. Yeah. So Frank and I were a great team, uh, teacher and student. I started working at his, as his studio assistant at the time, too. And uh, he really helped me. He, he, he made uh, assignments and projects for me. I basically did independent study my whole time there um, while I worked on my degree. And he would say things like, uh, this semester, you've got to make a painting where two figures are touching at life size. <laughs> Next semester, three figures touching at life size. Um, and he made it harder and harder as I went along. And it really taught me a lot. I um, went straight out of grad, uh, undergrad school to graduate school at the New York Academy of Art, and it felt good to get back to the East Coast, but also to be in New York and get to suddenly uh, become a New Yorker and fall in love with New York. That happened real fast. But also to get to study with some, some painters that I had always wanted to study with, like Stephen Assail, Vincent Desiderio, who's a good friend of yours. Yep. And Martha Erlbacher, mm -hmm. I became really close with Martha, who was actually a Philadelphian. So everything exactly. circles back to yeah, Philly. As, as with Vince. Yeah, a lot of the teachers at New York Academy came out of yeah. PAFA or Philadelphia. Yeah. 
So Martha and I became very close. I would take the train down to her house on weekends and we would paint together. And she taught me a lot of anatomy. And I did my two years in New York, uh, really pushing my drawing and my painting further. I learned more anatomy. With my MFA in hand, I went, uh, I landed in Santa Cruz again. I didn't really mean to, but I thought it would be a good place to kind of catch my breath and get on my feet. And uh, I immediately started getting teaching assignments at various institutions all around the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, I've mostly been there for the past 20 years, but I, I, I lived in Los Angeles for a year. I uh, lived in New York for two years again as a, and returned to the New York Academy as a teacher. I taught anatomical drawing for two years, uh, and I loved every minute of it. And uh, I still miss New York. I think about New York City every day. Yeah. Um, but I live and my family is in Santa Cruz. We have... We have um, a beautiful house in Santa Cruz near the university. I have my studio um, just on the side of the house so I can paint at home. It makes my life very efficient to be able to, to have a wife and kids and still be a painter and also, um, you know, teach, uh, teach at a a community college uh, in the San Francisco Bay area named uh, college of San Mateo. And they've treated me really well. It's, it's wonderful. um, That loyalty there and, uh, pay really well. I can support myself. Uh, and it, it gives me a lot of time to paint. I basically teach two days a week. Really, I'm in the studio about five days a week. Not Maybe not all day on Saturday and Sunday, but I'm in there all day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I get a lot of work done. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty idyllic life. Um, and I think, you know, we don't all have to live in New York right now. I think it's okay for people to live wherever they want to live and, yeah. and uh, you know, just go visit and have shows there. Right. Uh, and, you know, raise our families in places where there's plenty of grass and where it feels uh, yeah. comfortable for us. And Yeah, I feel I feel the same way. I, you know, I, I like, I have a, a gallery I show with the New York Dacia Gallery and uh, I have a sh- solo show there about every two years. And that feels good. Like you're saying, it's like sending the work to New York feels like you're there and uh you know and people are buying the paintings and owning them in the city it feels like you have a presence there and, and you did a uh was it a mural or the doors or something and where was that that's right. Gundy? that's or? right yeah the salma gundy club uh came upon their 150th anniversary uh in new york city and they're on fifth avenue um at uh 12th street is the closest cross street and they had a competition uh, a competitive commission come up and they wanted somebody to paint allegorical figures on their old library doors, uh, 150 year old library. So I had entered this competition. I saw the announcement for it and decided it was something I wanted to do. Uh, at first I saw it and I thought, oh, I'm not going to do that or I probably wouldn't get it anyway. Um, but it kept sticking in my mind and um, I thought I'll just apply for it. Long story short, they selected my designs for the paintings and um I had to paint them really fast. You know, they wanted them in a few months, but I painted these two doors with allegorical figures uh, and they came out really well. I'm really proud of them and they look really good. They're beautiful. They're Thanks. beautiful. Thanks. Congratulations on that. Um, so generally your process is you, you paint, uh, you paint for a couple of years you build a body of work and then you have a show in New York. Is that, yeah. That's, yeah. In a nutshell. Yeah. Now, this is great for students to hear young artists to hear to how, you know, you can come along and, and from the beginning and have, uh, you know, some little recognition from awards and that kind of thing. And then you make your decisions about art school and then how you can actually, you know, develop a, a career or life in the arts. Uh, you know, you get yourself set up where it's, well, you've got, a little money coming in or whatever your commissions you need and and life is uh life in the arts is a glorious thing yes it is 
fortunate. So it's nice for, um, I think it's nice for young ones to hear how it can be done with decisions along the way that are just, you know, like, I'm going to go here, or I'm going to go there, and, you know, and how you, you, you learn wherever you are and, and you progress wherever you are, and it becomes who you are. That's right. Defines you. It's your yeah. identity. Yeah. Now you're here. You're here in Columbus. I'm here. And yeah. we're happy you're here. And, uh, and you, you've tell us a little bit about the kind of workshops you do and, uh, the, the drawing class. And I think you're here out, not out of, because they, they paid you a fortune. You're here out of the, the labor of love and That's you're, right. you're here to, yeah. to, to help spread the, the wonder. But tell us a little bit about. Well, I'm, I'm here to teach uh, this master class that I've just concluded yesterday, and it was uh, portrait drawing was the topic. Uh, I think the subtitle of the workshop I titled was uh, Form and Light and how form and light are married together. You know, one affects the other and vice versa. But um, it was also meant to be in partnership with the exhibit that's up at the Bo Bartlett Center, which is uh, Big Stories. And you and I and Carl Dobsky curated that together over the past six years. We're very proud of our We're show. We're very proud of our show. <laughs> and it has incredible paintings in it. Um, we, we're in the show, but, but also just an amazing selection of contemporary figurative realists um, and large paintings that tell narrative stories uh, um, psychological stories, really exciting show. Everyone's been really knocked out by it. And we thought we would do a workshop in conjunction with the show. So, um, I've come out to Columbus to teach the workshop. We did three days drawing from the model interspersed with, uh, my lectures on everything from anatomy and proportion to the behavior of light and even just tips on how to draw an eye or nose or mouth. Uh, we worked in graphite and we just really did the, the very, very classical time honored thing of drawing with graphite on, on white paper. And it's a labor, you know, you, you think it might be over with quickly, but it, you can easily sink three days into a single pose with the model and still need more time and not finish your drawing. But, um, that investigation through the lens of drawing is so rich and you really learn about your subject matter. You learn about light, you learn about form. Uh, I think it went really well. Everybody seems to feel like they took a lot away from the workshop. And I really want that. I want somebody to say that they at least took something away that they will, that will aid them on their journey forward as an artist. I, I, I came down uh, off and on each day a little bit. And uh, one day I, I showed up and it was a break. I think maybe it was lunchtime or something. And the students were downstairs in front of the center and uh, they were all just lit up. They were turned on. You, you had like totally like flipped the switch for them. That's they were, great. They were shining bright and they were just like all ag agog about the information that you were providing for them. And, uh, it's a funny thing. I'm, you know, this feeling of being an artist and also play a role as a teacher sometimes. Um, but, you know, when you have a show and you're painting, it's, it's really about the glory of it all. You get to be the star and you get to, you get all the approbation and the sales and, you know, it's, it's glittery. And then the other side of it is you're in the classroom and you're really in the role of service. You know, if you're, if you're doing a good job, you're thinking, why are these students here? They're here to learn. What's my role? My role is to help them to learn. And if you just keep that in mind, that it's really not about you or your ego as an artist, that you're really in the role of service, then I think you do a good job as a teacher. And, um, you know, it, it, some people get stage fright, you know, getting up in front of a classroom. And I found that if you just remember that it's about helping people to sure. learn, it's, mm -hmm. you're not making them learn. You're just trying to help them learn. That's all you can do. Providing and, the opportunity. Yeah. Learn. 
And if you keep that in mind, I think you, you don't have any of that anxiety or stage fright uh, as a teacher. And I think that you also, you actually, you accomplish the goal. You help them learn. They get what they want out of it. You feel good. So I like that balance of, you know, kind of getting to be the star at times, but then getting behind the scenes and doing the, the work in the trenches in this service of others. Yeah. Yeah. And the reward is really seeing them lit up and, and charged and, and taking in the information. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I taught some at the Pennsylvania Academy just a little bit and, and I did for one year and I, at the end of it, I was like, I can't do this anymore. This is really hard work. It's hard work. You know, it's thankless. You, you, you pour your life into it and like, you know, a few students maybe respond, you know, and, and I still have wonderful students from that class that don't get me wrong and they still, you know, I hear from them, but I just thought, you know, this is, it's too much for me. I can't do it. So it's, it's an amazing thing that you're able to sustain that over a long time to give that, give back like that. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think too, there's a version of making the paintings is a version of service as well. Um, and sure we get some accolades from it and we do sell them sometimes, but, but, you know, because I think about trying to show students how to paint by doing the painting sometimes, you know, like I'll do the painting and think about my teachers and the people that I was inspired by and think, well, maybe someday this will inspire somebody too. So mm -hmm. both things can also be a, a form of service as well. I yeah, think. you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Any last words of wisdom you want to impart on us here? Do you want to give uh, listeners uh, any uh, any thoughts? Do you have anything there? No. Well, I guess give us a if if the if our theme is drawing this week on our yeah. house radio, then yeah, it um, it's something that I encourage everybody to do. You know, whether you're a child, um, in, in our in our case, it proved to be the way forward. But for many people, it can be um, it can give them a sense of worth, a sense of satisfaction and value. Um, uh, I think that budding artists, serious art students, um, the more they draw, the better the likelihood of their outcome and the success of their career path in whatever area of the arts they want to go into. Drawing is the foundation for any of it, whether it's graphic design or totally. animation is the big one that I mm -hmm. get with my younger students. And I get a lot of adults of all age ranges, retired adults too, elderly adults that find deep enrichment in drawing. Um, it, you know, it's because of all those things I mentioned before, it, you're, you're really investigating your subject matter in a, in a new way. It's not just like you could, you could look at a salt shaker on the table and say, it's a salt shaker, you know, it's for putting salt on your food, but you could draw the salt shaker and you become aware of it's the architecture of it and the transparency of the glass and the behavior of the granules inside and the way the light changes on each one of those things and the way the light is affected by the form, but also determines the form at the same time. It's really, everyone comes to the same conclusion that they often tell me the same thing. They say, Oh, drawing, this is about learning to see. Yeah. And it brings you into the moment. You know, when you look at something and you see it, you are brought to the moment in a way where everything behind you is behind you and everything in front of you is in front of you, but before you, but when you're looking and drawing and drawing from that thing that you're looking at and time is drawing nigh, there is just a moment where you come to life in a way that you're not ever, you know, is a, a attention, a kind of attention that you're paying. There was a moment at the end of the class yesterday when Betsy was playing um, some Eric Satie on the piano. She came into the center and was playing background music for the classes. And I felt the vibe. I felt this moment of like everybody was in the zone. And they were looking at Cora, our model. And the light was waning. It was the end of the day. And there was this beautiful moment where we were all sort of straining our eyes to see that last light before it got too dark. 
and Betsy was playing Eric Satie, and it was just a moment. That was a sublime moment. I will never forget that moment. And I'm thankfully somebody did make a video of that moment, and I'm going to be posting that on my social media. But it was uh, it was just the best having everybody in silence, drawing, beautiful light. Your wife Betsy playing incredible. Eric Satie, no CN number one. Um, and I just thought it doesn't get better than this. Doesn't at least for for us, you know, for for an artist. It doesn't get better than this. Yeah. And just like that, we have come to the end of another art house. Art House Radio. Coming to you from 88.5 WCUG in Columbus, Georgia, and OM Radio 96.3 in Charleston, South Carolina. And out there on the interwebs everywhere. You can see our complete playlist on the website arthouseradio.com that's A-R-T-H-A-U-S radio.com Today our special guest has been artist, friend, and fellow painter Noah Buchanan from California. Noah, do you want to give us a rundown of the show? Would you like to tell us what, what music selections you had for us today? Sure. So we started with The Pogues Summer in Siam from the movie Basquiat. We followed that with Blue and Green from Miles Davis. Then we heard Last Light by Jane Antonia Cornish. And here at the end, we're playing Eric Satie's Nocien, number one. Great selections, Noah, thank you. Perfect art house music for a perfect weekend morning. Thanks for being with us this morning, Noah. Thanks, Bo, it's been wonderful to be here. And uh, thanks for listening. Yeah, I'm going to keep on. Keep on. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, thanks for your wonderful music selections. Just just perfect. Um, I hope that everyone will get a chance to get out and see some art wherever you are, in your hamlet or in the city or wherever you are. Go out and see some art, your local museums or art galleries. Then I hope you'll get a chance to get into your studio, wherever that is, your bedroom, your little closet, and go in and make some art, get some art, make some art we need we need art we need everyone to tell their stories you have your story and you have a right to tell it tell it as honestly as you can in whatever form you want it to take we'll see you right back here next week on the art house i want to thank Shoei Rakawa, juliana wells and the art house team thank columbus state university thanks for listening Love and light, y'all.